This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, with, as always, the latest information and news and updates regarding everything to do with the mind, the brain, how to understand human behavior, how to feel well emotionally and cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way, trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to the first edition of Psychiatry Today for 2015. Uh, the show is, as always, pre-recorded to be aired on Wednesday, January 7, 2015. Hope your holidays were good and happy and healthy, and uh, hopefully you didn't get too far out of your routines, whether that be good sleeping habits or good eating habits or exercising regularly, and uh, if you did get off track, now's the time to get right back on track. And as far as the show for 2015, just want to re-emphasize that Although people don't normally think of psychiatry as taking care of the human body, it is a medical subspecialty, like most others. And of course, the organ that we psychiatrists are looking after is the brain. So that's always going to be my overriding emphasis for the show. It always has been. I guess I'm just re-emphasizing it for the new year that my goal is to help everyone listening to better take care of their brain and also understand more how it works from the tremendous insights that we continue to glean from researchers more and more all the time. And to start tonight's show off, we're going to get right into that theme. Uh, there have been a number of different reports circulating about simple, quick, and easy to self-administer so-called tests to find out how your brain is working, are you at risk for Alzheimer's disease, and so on and so forth. And looking through some of these, I found one that may definitely be worth considering uh, because it's rather uh, extremely simple to self-administer. And as far as how useful it may be, well, you know, as we read uh, about the research on this test, we can draw our own conclusions. So the article is called, How Healthy Is Your Brain? Take this test to find out. So what is the test? Well, it's just this. How long can you stand on one foot. Now that is not just a test of balance. It is actually a test of brain health. 
Internet brain games aren't the only way to gauge what's going on with your brain health. This simple physical test may be able to tell you how healthy your brain is. According to a new study from Japan published in the journal Stroke, in the study researchers had almost 1,400 healthy people stand on one leg with their eyes open. And that's important, folks, because、uh, there is a specific neurological sign that you can test for by having、uh, someone just stand. With their eyes closed, but this is with your eyes open, so it's not as hard as you think. Just stand on one leg with your eyes open for as long as possible, and if you get to a full minute, then mercifully you can stop. So they had these people do this, then they performed MRIs on them, and、uh, the subject's average age was 67. So they're right there. In the age range where they're already at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. And then they had them complete four cognitive tests. Interestingly, the length of time that people could balance on one foot with their eyes open predicted what the scientists saw on the brain scans. Those subjects who were unable to stand flamingo style. For more than 20 seconds, were more likely to have cerebral small vessel disease. This is a condition where the tiny blood vessels deep in the brain are damaged. Now,、uh, none of the study subjects showed any symptoms of any cognitive problems or dementia. So, 16% of these folks with one, what are called lacunar infarction lesions, that is, a small damaged area of the brain where one of these tiny blood vessels has clogged, struggle to balance. So, let's say that again. If you just had one of these spots on the brain that showed up on an MRI, That showed you had disease of the tiny blood vessels of the brain. And 16% of those folks with one of these lesions could not balance on one foot with their eyes open for at least 20 seconds or more. Now, <clears throat> if you had two or more of these tiny little mini infarctions in the brain, then about a third. Of those people couldn't stand on one foot at least 20 seconds. And then also, if you had a microbleed brain lesion, this is a minor hemorrhage due to a damaged vessel. That's the opposite of a clot. Okay, a clot is where the vessel just clots off,、uh, a hemorrhage is where there's bleeding. Sort of the blood vessel bursts and there's blood that goes into the surrounding brain tissue.、Uh, 15% of those folks had trouble, and 30% with two of those microbleeds had trouble. So, really, what this is painting a picture of is blood vessel disease in the brain, 
is correlated with this trouble balancing, which in turn seems to correlate with cognitive problems. These lesions that they're seeing in the tiny blood vessels in the brain can be thought of as silent strokes. We have tiny little blood vessels throughout our brain. They're literally microscopic. They can close off. You can get little damaged areas of the brain, but it won't show up in terms of symptoms until many, many more of them occur or they're much larger and they involve uh, more important or larger areas of the brain. <clears throat> These silent strokes, as it were, are more common in people who are older, but especially people who have high blood pressure, especially if it's not controlled, or people who have diabetes. Now, if you get too many of these silent strokes, there is a type of dementia that will develop. It's called vascular dementia because it's dementia with memory loss and uh, behavior problems and deterioration of functioning, but it's not because of plaques and tangles which cause Alzheimer's disease. It's because of the disease that affects these tiny blood vessels. And again, high blood pressure and diabetes are the two biggest risk factors for this blood vessel disease or vascular dementia. So if you have someone who is showing symptoms of dementia and you do an MRI and you see blood vessel disease in the brain, the evidence that shows up, then you can pretty much assume someone has vascular dementia as opposed to Alzheimer's disease, especially if they have the pre-existing risk factors of high blood pressure or diabetes. Now, in the study, these standing on one foot times that were too brief was associated with poor performance on the cognitive tests, right? So you have a correlation between the small blood vessel disease and poor balance, and you also have an association between that tiny blood vessel disease and problems with thinking, memory, attention. But why is it that this causes the difficulty balancing? Well, previous research has already shown a link between what's called gait dysfunction, gait, G-A-I-T, that is an abnormal way of walking with brain lesions and blockage of small vessels. This new study suggests that one component of gait, balance, may be especially tied to brain health, possibly because it reflects early brain changes that don't necessarily cause symptoms, but increase the risk of stroke. One leg standing time is a simple measure of postural instability and might be a consequence of the presence of brain abnormalities. However, you should not automatically conclude that you face an elevated risk of stroke or dementia if your balance is poor. As we age, our vision become, can become cloudy, hearing may decline, joints stiffen, 
and your proprioception, which is your sense of where your body is in space, worsens. All these are factors that may affect your ability to stand on one leg for a long time. And in fact, in this study, they found that older participants had more trouble balancing. Unless you check for all these other things, this test alone doesn't predict your risk for having a stroke or having dementia. But it does suggest you may need to seek evaluation. All right, well, we're going to talk more about the study and the conclusions and the recommendations when we come back from our first commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after these words. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We are talking about how a simple test, such as seeing how long you can balance on one foot with your eyes open, may indicate the health of your brain and how much at risk you are for stroke and or dementia. Now, individuals showing poor balance on one leg should receive increased attention, as this may indicate increased risk for brain disease and cognitive decline based on the results of this research. So what happens if you take this test yourself and you flunk it? Well, ask your doctor if you should be concerned take a proactive approach to brain health. People say, well, what can I do to keep from getting Alzheimer's and what can I do to prevent having a stroke? Keep in mind what I always preach to you. If it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain. 
Work on your risk factors. Hypertension, diabetes, poor diet, lack of exercise, smoking. If you have high blood pressure, get it under control. If you have diabetes, get it under control and get your uh, diet in order and stick to it. Even if you don't have diabetes, if you have a poor diet, time to fix that up. If you don't exercise, get going. And if you smoke, time to stop. All of these things will help with your brain health. So while if you flunk this test, it's not necessarily time to run to your doctor and insist that you have an MRI for your brain, but it is time to pay attention to the risk factors that you can modify. All right. Well, next on tonight's show, unfortunately, over the last few years, um, I've had to talk to you a lot about some very serious violent acts committed by people who, after the fact, were found to have mental illness. And this continues, and, you know, I, I, I'm not going to talk about every one on the show, or it would just take up most of the show most of the time. Um, there's yet another example that happened since I was with you last, which, uh, by the way, that was a few weeks ago, took uh, the last two weeks off for New Year's and the holiday before that, but, um, you know, the police uh, shot and killed uh, a mentally ill man who was going on a a rampage and was in his car and trying to uh, run down police and possibly pedestrians, so the police uh, were left with no choice but uh, to uh, use deadly force to stop him in his car before he used it as a lethal weapon against someone. Um, But this article that I want to talk to you about, I thought was interesting and wanted to share it with you. Um, it, uh, It says, can identifying mental illness stop terror attacks? And the reason I wanted to discuss it with you, because I think it, I mean, that title alone strikes right at the heart of the debate about the whole issue of the mentally ill and violence and and mass murders and shootings. Uh, Of course, a big part of this controversy is that we have to do a better job identifying the dangerously mentally ill, and that potentially could be one way to prevent such incidents. Uh, Now, in reality, a lot of people think that that's not possible, most psychiatric experts on mental illness and violence would tell you, with good reason, that it's next to impossible to predict violent behavior uh, committed by the mentally ill. And it is a fact that someone with a mental illness is far more likely to be a victim of violence than to commit violence. What we do know is that the combination of mental illness and substance abuse is uh, an increased risk factor for that person going on to commit violence. But let's see what this article has to say. Uh, It cites some recent uh, examples, like the radical Muslim who killed a soldier outside Canada's parliament. 
the right-wing extremist who opened fire on buildings in Texas's capital and tried to burn down the Mex- Mexican consulate. And then there's the Al-Qaeda-inspired assailant who hacked an off-duty soldier to death in London. Police said all three were terrorists and motivated by ideology. Authorities and family members said they may have been mentally ill. A growing body of research suggests they might well have been both. New studies have challenged several decades of thinking that psychological problems are only a minor factor in the making of terrorists. The research has instead found a significant link between mental problems and so-called lone wolf terrorism. Now, academics and law enforcement officials are working to turn that research into tools to prevent deadly attacks. It's never an either-or in terms of ideology versus mental illness. According to Ramon Spaage, a sociologist at Australia's Victoria University, who conducted a major study funded by the United States Justice Department of lone wolf extremists. Think Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bombing, for example. <clears throat> the study preceded the end to a deadly 16-hour siege involving a gunman who took hostages in a cafe in Sydney, Australia. Prime Minister Tony Abbott said the gunman, Iranian-born Manharon Moniz, had a long history of violent crime, infatuation with extremism, and mental instability. As an aside, I personally cannot fathom how this man was not on a watch list and could have eventually uh, secured the weapons with which he committed these horrific crimes. Now, getting back to the article, with groups like the Islamic State spreading violence in Syria and Iraq and bloodthirsty rhetoric on the Internet, authorities around the world have issued increasingly insistent warnings about the threat posed by lone wolf attackers who read these things and view these events and therefore can be influenced by them to commit similar acts even though they're not affiliated with any group whatsoever. They therefore can be difficult to stop with a counter-terrorism strategy geared toward intercepting communications and disrupting plots. <clears throat> Solo terrorism doesn't take an awful lot of organizing. It doesn't take too many people to conspire together. There's no great complexity to it. So what that means is that we have a very short time to interdict to actually intervene and make sure that these people don't get away with it. Police forces and intelligence agencies are examining whether insights from research could help. 
A number of law enforcement and intelligence agencies have shown interest in this, obviously as evidenced by the U.S. Justice Department funding this study. Uh, in Britain, a police counter-terrorism unit is using a major study of lone wolf terrorists to develop risk assessment analysis. A British security official who spoke on condition of anonymity said many attackers display warning signs, but that recognizing them is easier in retrospect. British intelligence officials are studying the link between mental illness and lone actor terrorism. Most people with mental health problems are neither terrorists nor violent, and mental illness alone can't explain lone wolf attackers. There are some experts who dispute whether there is a link at all. <clears throat> now, after uh, Mikhail Zahaf Bibo's deadly attack on a soldier October the 22nd in Ottawa, Jocelyn Belanger, a psychology professor at the University of Quebec at Montreal, told the Canadian Senate's National Security Committee that to believe that radicalized individuals are crazy or not playing with a full deck, this is her words, will be our first mistake in developing effective counterterrorism strategies. But this new research suggests that solo terrorists are much more likely to have mental health problems than either members of the general public or participants in group terrorism. Dr. Spaj and Mark Ham of Indiana State University studied 98 lone wolf attackers in the United States. They found that 40% had identifiable mental health problems compared with only 1.5% in the general population. Their conclusion? Mental illness is not the only factor that drives individuals to commit terrorist acts, but it is one of the factors. Mental illness can play a part in shaping particular belief systems and in constructing the enemy, externalizing blame for one's own failure or grievances onto this all-threatening enemy, which the person then uh, takes out their act of uh, revenge. A second study looked at 119 lone wolf attackers and a similar number of members of violent extremist groups in the United States and Europe, and almost a third of the lone wolves, almost 32%, had been diagnosed with a mental illness, while only 3.4% of terrorist group members were mentally ill. There's definitely something to this. Right, we're going to have to take another commercial break before we continue our discussion of the study. We'll be right back after those words. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that's individualized. 
The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. And before the break, we were wading into the debate about whether better identifying mental illness could potentially put a stop to terrorist attacks. Now... As opposed to the lone wolves that we were talking about before, group-based terrorists are psychologically usually quite normal. uh, One reason for this may be that terrorist recruiters are likely to reject candidates who appear erratic or mentally ill. Mental illness could make lone wolf attacks easier to foresee. 60% of the attackers studied leaked details of their plans, sometimes telling friends or family. And as we saw with the, the man who ambushed two New York City police officers uh, in Brooklyn recently, uh, posted something on social media, uh, telegraphing their attack. Now, There is a British counterterrorism unit trying to develop ways of distinguishing genuine threats from hot-headed talk. Recent cases suggest determining who really is a threat is fraught with difficulty, as you might well expect. Uh, More than a year before he hacked a soldier to death in London in 2013, Michael Adabole's online extremism drew the attention of Britain's intelligence services. Domestic intelligence MI5 told a parliamentary inquiry into the murder that it uses a range of factors to assess the threat from potential lone wolves, including 
an inability to cope with stress and anxiety, social isolation, and mental health problems. MI5 agents suggested that Adabule, who is now serving a life sentence in a psychiatric hospital, be assessed by the agency's Behavioral Science Unit, a team of psychologists and social scientists, but the assessment was never done. The lawmakers' report called that a missed opportunity and recommended that MI5 should ensure that the unit's advice is integrated more thoroughly into investigations. Hmm, you think that's a good idea? Think that might have saved that poor police officer's life? Signals also were misread in the case of Nikki Riley, a 22-year-old convert to Islam who walked into a restaurant in the English town of Exeter in 2008 with a homemade bomb. The device went off in the restroom, injuring Riley and no one else. At his trial, jurors were told that Riley had learning difficulties and had had many years of contact with mental health services. In 2003, he talked to a psychiatrist about making a bomb. The information was passed on to the police, who judged that Riley wasn't a serious threat. Well, at least the psychiatrist had tried to do their job. Uh, If we are treating a patient, and a patient makes such a direct threat of violence like that, we are obligated, ethically and professionally, to alert the authorities right away. Now, American authorities, in contrast, have been accused of being too aggressive in pursuit of lone attackers. Uh, The FBI has foiled several alleged attacks through sting operations in which agents posed as terror supporters supplying advice and equipment. Critics say the strategy can amount to entrapment of mentally vulnerable people who wouldn't have the wherewithal to act alone. Meanwhile, the fundamental question of whether there is a link between mental health problems and terrorism remains controversial. The most lethal lone wolf attacker in recent years was anti-Muslim extremist Anders Bering Breivik, who killed 77 people in a bombing and gun rampage in Norway in 2011. Breivik was unrepentant. One psychiatric report found him to be insane, while a second concluded that he was sane, and judges agreed, sending him to prison indefinitely. The killer was happy with that outcome, For Breivik, it was recognition that his views were legitimate and not those of a madman. Personally, although it can be argued that the FBI have engaged in some heavy-handed tactics, I think even more can be done to thwart lone wolf terrorists. Uh, There are certainly exceptions, but 
more often than not, these people post some pretty threatening things on social media. And if you're going to put information like that on a public forum, then, you know, civil liberties or not, then I think uh, you don't have the right or expectation uh, that law enforcement wouldn't monitor social media and uh, flag someone for further scrutiny if they post things like that. <clears throat> now, is that always the case? Would such monitoring prevent all such incidents? No. Uh, <clears throat> locally, right here in Georgia, uh, we had a young man who shot people at a FedEx plant um, and there was no such advance warning. Um, he, you know, had known to um, been shown uh, erratic behavior at work, uh, but here was one case where uh, there was no known evidence beforehand. No one could said after the fact, "Wow, yeah, we we knew he would do something like this." So it isn't always the case, but clearly uh, when these people are telegraphing their acts. Uh, that, to me, represents a missed opportunity to intervene in advance. <clears throat> well, uh, the arguments are going to continue to go back and forth. Unfortunately, I have a feeling these incidents are going to continue. Uh, hopefully, this indicates that more research will be done, and hopefully this will be done in concert with law enforcement experts to somehow come up with ways to try to prevent more of these crimes while not unnecessarily infringing on civil liberties. <clears throat> Next up on tonight's show, I saw this article and I thought to myself, well, you know, this might offend some people uh, who think it's directed at them. On the other hand, if people know certain characteristics about their personality, then uh, maybe instead of taking offense to this article, they might welcome the way to try to make some changes that would help them feel better. And there again, there will be people for whom this article doesn't apply personally, but they know someone to whom it does and it may give them some useful strategies to offer that person. What personality trait am I talking about? It's being a people pleaser. And the article says why being a people pleaser is bad for you and how to stop. <clears throat> well, whether this is going to offend or help, I'm going to go ahead and discuss it with you. Now, being concerned about others' feelings and always being ready to jump in and help are terrific traits in a friend and partner. But when it comes to your health, being a people pleaser, to the extreme that is, can backfire. People pleasers value taking care of other people, and that's a great thing. It would be a better world if we all did, but for what the article calls people-pleasers, 
it's to a point where it can be self-destructive. In fact, some people are more concerned with other people's pain than even their own. In a recent study published in the journal Proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences, researchers looked at how much money people were willing to sacrifice to reduce the number of painful electric shocks delivered to themselves or an anonymous stranger. The researchers were surprised to find that most people were willing to pay more money to diminish a stranger's pain than their own discomfort. People pleasers are also more likely to overindulge, which can add up to unhealthy weight gain. Now you might ask, well, how can that be? What's the connection there? Well, a 2012 Case Western University study found that pleasers tend to cave to social pressure a friend is having dessert by matching the amount of food the friend eats just so the friend won't feel uncomfortable. It's a way that pleasers maintain social harmony, avoid conflict, and gain the acceptance they're always striving for. Often, people pleasers are afraid of confrontation and will just agree and say yes to most anything to avoid an uncomfortable argument or disagreement. That, according to Susan Newman, a social psychologist and author of what I think must be a great book for people pleasers, it's called The Book of No, 250 Ways to Say It and Mean It and Stop People Pleasing Forever. But being so focused on taking care of others and feeling guilty or selfish for doing something for yourself, like hitting the gym, means your health and wellness often takes a back seat. It can create incredible anxiety, not only because you're doing too much, but also because you're worried about doing it right and doing it perfectly. You're in a constant state of stress trying to be all things to all people. You can be tired and your resistance lowered, making you more susceptible to colds. And we'll come back after this break with how to stop. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. 
The good news is, Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. The current topic is being a people pleaser, how it's bad for you and how to stop. Now, right before the break, we were talking about ways in which to define who is a people pleaser, how it can be detrimental And now, we're going to talk about some ways to find out if you are a true people pleaser. And after that, go over some ways to try to stop being one. Alright, so how do you know if you're a tried and true people pleaser? Here are ten questions that you can ask yourself. Number one, do you feel guilty or that you've let someone down if you were to say no. Number two, are you the go-to person for family and close friends? And I'll expand on that a little bit. Whenever anyone needs help with something, needs to be bailed out personally, financially, legally, or otherwise. Number three, Do you agree to help others even when you don't really have the time or resources to do so? And again, I'll expand on that a little bit to the point where you are drained to your detriment, whether that's physically due to fatigue or financially, uh, or that you're helping the other person has damaged other relationships. Number four. Are you often pressed for time or late? Number five, are you afraid of being called selfish? Number six, do you tend to avoid conflict and confrontation? And I'll expand on that, again, even to your own detriment, allowing yourself to be taken advantage of and abused. Number seven, Does your relationship or do your friendships feel one-sided that you do most of the work? Number eight, do you fear that people will stop liking you or stop wanting to be your friend if you say no? Number nine, do you feel taken advantage of? And number ten, do you sometimes feel angry or resentful of the person asking for your help but would never say anything about it to them. If you answered yes to several or more of these ten questions, chances are you're a classic people pleaser. That means you've got some work to do, including learning how to say that dreaded no more often so that you can prioritize yourself and your health. Now, how to stop Being a people pleaser, here's the good news. You don't have to stop being a nice person. Instead, here's how to strike a balance between helping others 
and finding time to take care of priority number one. That's you. Okay, first, before saying yes, ask yourself some questions. When a friend asks for help or a favor, uh, the author we refer to, Newman, for suggests checking in with yourself with these questions. Why am I agreeing to this? What do I have to give up in order to please the person who is asking? Am I going to feel resentful of myself or the other person if I say yes? And lastly, is my relationship with the person who is asking me for help starting to feel unbalanced rather than give and take? Next, remind yourself that people won't fall apart if you say no. Everybody is used to hearing no. We think we're going to devastate them with our no and have so much anxiety about a person's response. But no one is going to be that upset. They may be disappointed, but in an hour they'll be over it. Simply find a nice way to turn them down, such as, I'd love to help, but I can't. You don't have to justify it or make a strong case for your no. Now, for those of you who have trouble uttering that one word, two little letters, practice saying no and stick with it. If someone knows you're a people pleaser, they won't take your first no. You may feel the desire to cave. You have to stand by your no. Also, be a good role model of self-care. And in doing so, you'll have less of a tendency to be a people pleaser. Since people pleasers are motivated by the reward of helping others, Think of taking good care of yourself as setting a healthy example for your family. If you're crashing every day from exhaustion and are unhappy and stressed out, your kids see that and that's how they learn. Think about how do you model living a balanced life. And lastly, take care of yourself first so that you can help take care of others. Remind yourself that just basic self-care, including getting a good night's sleep and fitting in time to exercise, even if it's just taking a 20-minute walk, aren't luxuries, but actually necessities that keep you going. By taking good care of yourself, you'll be strong, more and better equipped to have energy to care for others. <clears throat> so there you have it. If you recognized yourself in the description of a people pleaser, hopefully you'll take this in the manner it was intended that this can be detrimental to your health. Try to stop those tendencies and some real life practical tips on how to counteract those tendencies. But if someone you know and love and care about has that tendency and you recognize them in the description I just gave you, uh, try to refer them 
to this segment on the show, tips on how to stop being a people pleaser. And I'll mention that book, again, Susan Newman, a social psychologist, and her book is The Book of No, 250 Ways to Say It and Mean It and Stop People Pleasing Forever. Well, there you have it. All right. Next up on the show, we are going to turn back to some basic science, some hard science, and this is about a new way to potentially detect Alzheimer's disease earlier. Right now, there are no methods that currently exist for the early detection of Alzheimer's disease, which affects one out of nine people over the age of 65. But now, a team of Northwestern University scientists and engineers has developed a non-invasive MRI approach that can detect the disease in the living animal. And it can do so at the earliest stage of the disease, well before typical Alzheimer's symptoms appear. They developed an MRI imaging probe that pairs a magnetic nanostructure with an antibody that seeks out the amyloid beta brain toxins responsible for onset of the disease. The accumulated toxins, because of the associated magnetic nanostructures, show up as dark areas in MRI scans of the brain. The ability to detect these toxins may one day enable scientists to both spot trouble early and better design drugs or therapies to combat and monitor the disease. Early evidence suggests that this MRI probe improves memory in and of itself by binding to the toxins to render them handcuffed and unable to do further damage. Using the MRI, they can see the toxins attached to brain cells, and they expect to use this tool to detect the disease early and help identify drugs that can eliminate the toxin and improve health. And details of this new disease diagnosis are published in the journal Nature Nanotechnology. The emotional and economic impacts of Alzheimer's disease are devastating. This year, the direct cost of the disease in the United States is more than $200 billion, according to the Alzheimer's Association. By the year 2050, that cost is expected to be $1.1 trillion as baby boomers age. These figures don't take into account the lost time of caregivers. Now, this MRI probe technology is detecting something different from conventional technology. The toxic amyloid beta protein, which uh, is what this new probe is looking for, instead of the plaques, which occur at a later stage. Um, The proteins that this researcher is looking for are widely believed to be the culprit in the onset of the disease and subsequent memory loss. Because these proteins attack the synapses of brain cells, which eventually destroys memory and causes cell death. Eventually, the amyloid beta builds up and causes the plaques that the current existent probes can look at. And as yet, we have no effective drugs for Alzheimer's disease, but this probe that researchers are working on 
could hopefully lead to better drug development and also looking at how well new drugs would be working. <clears throat> and again, by looking at these proteins much earlier in the stage of the disease before they go on to develop full-blown plaques and killing brain cells, you're, you're moving the process back to the first sign of trouble so that earlier intervention uh, would be better likely to preserve memory and prevent the ultimate progression of the disease, which eventually leads to death. Now, they studied this probe in live animals and saw improvement in memory after one dose of the special MRI probe, but they also tested it with human brain tissue and uh, were able to find similar results. So it's very promising, but clearly a lot more work needs to be done. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I appreciate your tuning in to listen to this information, which I hope that you found interesting and informative. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.